enjoy the church, we promise to uphold the church with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. Uh, and I know I heard gifts, service, and witness uh, this morning in the offertory. Thank you both so much. It was beautiful, beautiful. Our scripture this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. And let me tell you something. We're not going to read all of it right now. We'll read all of it eventually. Uh, but I'm going to read through verse 71 right now. So when I stop, don't think that I just forgot that there was more to the scripture. All right, we will come back to it. But if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Or as always, it's printed on the cover of your bulletin. As you're able, if you would, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 1. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And let us pray. Now, dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Hope. Hope. It's a word we use a lot. Sometimes I think we overuse it a lot. We use it for all kinds of things. You, are you getting, what do you want for Christmas? Well, I don't know, but I hope I'm getting a new car. You know? When is your boss going to retire? I don't know, but I hope it's soon. Do you know who's preaching Sunday? No, I don't, but I'm hoping it's Allison or Carolyn. You know, We use the word a lot. Years ago, Susan was teaching, and I was in a conversation with a principal and found out we both played racquetball. So we agreed to play. And I was told her, I said, so I'm going to play racquetball with your boss. And she says, you know he's quite a bit younger than you, right? I said, well, yes, I know that, but it'll be okay. And she said, and you know, he's really athletic. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, well, I still, I, I think I'll be okay. So we played, and we wound up meeting every week, Tuesday mornings, 5.30, and played racquetball. And every week she'd say, are you going to win? And I would always say, I hope so. Do you know how many times my hopes were realized against this young whippersnapper? Never. <laughs> Never once did I beat him. He beat me every week. But I tried to remain hopeful. We use the word a lot. But the flip side to hopeful is hopeless. And that's also a word I think sometimes we tend to overuse. When our kids were little, they'd be doing homework, and they'd want us to do it for them. And I'd say, well, we can't do that. You need to learn how to do this. And they'd say, in frustration, it's hopeless. And I'd say, trying to be a good parent, it's not hopeless, it's hard. There's a difference between the two. I wanted them to learn that. Last week, we were all together for the holiday, and I had problems with my phone. I wound up having to replace my phone, getting a new one. 
So I'm struggling with the technology, you know, wrestling with all this stuff, needing my children's help, getting frustrated, saying, this is hopeless. To which my children said, it's not hopeless, it's hard. And there's a difference. To which I said, I don't need that attitude. Hope and hopeless, back and forth. If there was ever a couple that I think truly understood both, it was Zechariah and Elizabeth. A good portion of the first chapter of Luke's gospel is devoted to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're described for us early on in verses 6 and 7. It says, Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly, according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. So we learned three things. They were both righteous. That's good. They did not have children. Elizabeth couldn't have children. And they weren't spring chickens anymore. They were getting along in years. Now, of those three facts, think about the second one. They had no children. Today, couples will make decisions. We don't want children. And they make that decision. In biblical times, people didn't make that decision. It was expected everyone would have children. They had hoped for children. Early on in their married life, I'm sure people said about Zechariah and Elizabeth, they don't have any children Yet, but then at some point in time, people stopped saying yet. People simply said, they don't have any children. And it was difficult. The Old Testament has all kinds of stories of women who desperately wanted children and thought their day was past. We know the story of Abraham and Sarah. Even though God had promised them, that they would have a child, Sarah had given up hope. Their grandson, Jacob, married the love of his life, Rachel. And for years, Rachel thought she would not be able to have children. It was painful for her. In the first chapter of 1 Samuel, we read the story of Hannah, who so desperately wants a child, she goes to the temple and she cries out in prayer and anguish to God. Desperate for a child. Elizabeth wanted a child, but could not have one. In verse 25, she says, it's a disgrace. That's their life. They had hope, but then the years passed, and that hope was gone. Well, in those later years, uh, Zechariah is a priest in the temple. They lived in Ein Kerem, uh, this little village uh, in a valley. It would be a rough walk back to Jerusalem where the temple was, but such was the life of a priest to travel back and forth. Uh, and so Zechariah would go from Ein Kerem to Jerusalem, and on this particular year, he had an honor, a high and holy privilege, to offer incense in the temple, done once a year by one priest. And once you had done it, you could not do it again. It would be someone else's turn. 
a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. And so he is in the temple, this high and holy moment, when an angel appears. And Zechariah responds to the angel the same way everybody in Scripture responds to angels. He is terrified. I don't know what it is. When angels appeared to people, everybody got scared. Zechariah is frightened. And this is chapter 1, picking up with verse 13. The angel speaks. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink, even before his birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him. And to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah says, uh, maybe I need to show you my driver's license. Maybe you don't know how old I am. And maybe you don't know how old Elizabeth is. Our time has passed. Our hope is gone. But the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. So Zechariah finishes his service in the temple, comes out and cannot speak. They discover Elizabeth is indeed pregnant, and all through the term of her pregnancy, he cannot say a word as punishment for his disbelief. Now, the three times Susan was pregnant, I was able to speak. And I did so often. And I said things that I really thought were funny. Uh, she didn't always find them as amusing as I did. So being mute when your wife is pregnant might not have been as a bad thing as he thought it was. Uh, but anyway, he was. The time comes for the baby to be born. John the Baptist, their son, that they had wanted, is born. He still can't speak. After eight days, they go to the temple, as was their custom, for the naming of the child. And when they ask what the child's name shall be, Elizabeth says, John. And their family and their friends say, John? No one on either side of either one of your families has ever been named John. Where are you getting John from? You can't name this kid John. Zechariah, tell her she can't name this kid John. Oh, wait, you can't talk. Make some kind of sign so that she knows you're not going to name the kid John. He gets a tablet, and he writes four words. His name is John. And then, and only then, is his mouth opened, and he can speak. And he sings this glorious song of praise to God, this song of praise and hope that is our scripture for this morning that we're going to get to in just a minute. But they are in the midst of what seems like a hopeless situation. And God gives them hope. Hope. I read an interesting book recently. Uh, 
called Woman of God. I first saw it in the airport in Chicago. I was up there uh, doing some work for our annual conference. There were several of us up there with Methodist preachers from around the country. And we're getting ready to come home. So I'm in the airport in Chicago uh, in the bookstore with my friend Julie Boone. Julie, senior pastor of McKendree Methodist Church in Lawrenceville, Georgia. And she picks up a book in the bookstore called Woman of God. And she says, have you seen this? I had not. So I looked at it, and it was written by James Patterson. Now, I want to ask for a show of hands of how many of you have read James Patterson novels, okay? Uh, I, like I said, you don't, you don't have to you know, tell me. Uh, I've read my share. Patterson, the last time I looked, had sold, I think it was a gazillion novels. Uh, he's just written, just people buy his books. He can tell a story. But most of his books, if you've read them, you know, most of his books are very graphically violent. You don't read them to small children at bedtime, they'll give nightmares. You don't read them at bedtime, they'll give you nightmares. And so my friend Julie picks up this book called Woman of God by James Patterson. And she says, have you ever read any James Patterson? And I said, uh, I, I don't really remember. I, I don't know. Uh, but she starts, she flips through it, and she says, it looks pretty good, and she gets the novel. And she likes it. And so I got it, and I read it, and it was unlike any Patterson novel I've ever read. The main character is a woman named uh, Bridget Fitzgerald. As the story opens, she is serving as a doctor in war-torn South Sudan a very dangerous place, trying to bring help, trying to bring aid, trying to bring healing in the midst of a war zone as a volunteer. She meets another young doctor, and he falls for her, and she falls for him. Before they have much time to do anything about it, the camp is overrun. She is seriously injured. Her young doctor friend is killed, as are many other people at the clinic. She winds up in Europe to recover from her injuries, and to grieve this loss. And she struggles with her faith. After all she's seen in war-torn Sudan, all the innocents who were killed, all the people who did such terrible things, this man who had given his life to try to bring healing is killed. And she asks God, how can you let this happen? And she loses hope. But in her recovery, she meets another young man in Europe, a playwright. They fall in love get married, they have a daughter. And it looks like her life is good. And it looks like her life is happy. And then you remember you're reading a Patterson novel, and nobody's life ever stays happy in a Patterson novel. Tragedy strikes again. And again, she struggles with her faith. God, where are you? How can you let this happen? And she feels like the situation is hopeless. And as you read the book over and over, you see God giving this woman hope in situations that seem hopeless. And I think part of the reason the book has been popular is because people who are in situations that seem hopeless are desperate for hope. You say that's just a novel. Oh, I know that. But if you want to see hopelessness, turn on the news. Pick up the paper. All kinds of people who sound Hopeless. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a story about a man in Dade County, the most northwestern corner in the state of Georgia, Dade County. 
Like other places in North Georgia and North Carolina, there have been wildfires up there in the drought. The fire was approaching this house, and there was nothing he could do about it. He was helpless. The situation seemed hopeless. Along the same time, I read a story about a young man in Floyd County, where our son is in school. The young man is six, was 16 years old, a high school basketball star at Model High School. I'd been to Model High School several times. Their former principal is a good friend of mine. Uh, this kid was popular, good student, good ball player, was uh, outside of class, outside of, of basketball, uh, involved with a stupid game, really, with his friends that cost him his life. All these students lost their friend. His mother was interviewed having just lost a son. I cannot imagine her grief. You understand how she looks at the situation and feels hopeless. You don't have to look far to see people facing difficult challenges. People who have a hard time seeing hope. You understand how Zechariah and Elizabeth on up in years, having been unable to have children, would feel hopeless. But then Zechariah gets a visit from an angel. And John the Baptist is born. And when, jo when Zechariah can speak again, he sings this marvelous song of praise and of hope. And you say, well, sure, it was easy to have hope once the kid was born. He wasn't singing this song when the angel first came to visit. Now he's singing a song of hope. Well, yeah, it was easy after the baby was born. But listen to it. The song is not so much about the baby, his baby being born, although he does address his son in the scripture, as about the baby that's still to be born, the Christ child that at this point is not yet born. Look again at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. You hear that? Past tense past tense. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David. The Christ child hasn't been born when he says, he has done this. He has raised up a mighty savior. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that he would be, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. None of this has happened yet, but Zechariah speaks as if it's already been done. And you, child, he says to his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Do you hear it? This is not hope in the reality of what he already had seen. Once you see something, once you can see it, feel it, touch it, you don't need hope anymore. At that point, it's fact. His child having been born, that was fact. 
the Savior to be born. That was hope. That was hope. God had promised the Savior was coming. And so Zechariah spoke these words as if it had already occurred. He had that much hope that what God had said, what God had promised, God would accomplish. That's hope. That's hope. We sang, uh, it came upon a midnight clear a little bit ago. I love the third verse. A lot of times we skip third verses uh, for some odd reason, but we sang the third verse, and I love the third verse of that hymn. Listen to it. Oh, ye beneath life's crushing load. You ever felt like you were beneath life's crushing load? You ever been there? Oh, ye beneath life's crushing load, where forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Sounds almost hopeless, but he's not done. Look now for glad and golden hours. Come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. That's hope. That's hope. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. Advent is a season that we celebrate in hope. Not just in what we know to already have happened, but hope in what God has promised. We become hopeless when we see nothing other than what we can see right in front of us. The reality as it looks to us. We gain hope when we learn to see through the eyes of God. When we remember that, we remember that God has promised us that God is always with us. Lo, I am with you always. When we remember that God has promised, Jesus promised in the upper room, peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Not peace as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When we see not just what's right in front of us, but when we see the promises of God and know that God is with us in all things, that's when we truly become people of hope. In Advent, we are reminded that our hope always is in the presence and the promises of God. Let us pray. Lord, during this Advent season, as we are preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of the Christ child, remind us that you are with us always, that your word is true, and because of those things, we are people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.